Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Susan Thompson of Colgate University, a host on New Books Network in African Studies and in Genocide Studies, channels on the New Books Network. Thanks for tuning in. Today, my guest is Anjan Sundaram, an investigative journalist who has written three award-winning books on African people and places, Democratic Republic of Congo in Stringer, Rwanda in Bad News, and now Central African Republic in Breakup, the book we're going to discuss today. Each of Anjan's books are glorious in their storytelling, told in great detail through years of professional engagements with violence, war, and genocide, told from the perspective of those living through it. I'm delighted to have Anjan with me today to talk about his forthcoming book, Breakup, A Marriage in Wartime, to be published in April 2023 by Catapult Press. I read the book in a single sitting. For the prose is unflinching in its human rights reporting of the ongoing civil war in the Central African Republic. It is also about the demise of a marriage, meaning breakup, for me at least, documents the ways in which war and marriage tear people apart. Anjan, welcome. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks so much for the kind introduction, Susan. Yeah, it's going to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, I always like to start my interviews with uh, a little bit of background on the author. The author is a creator. So I wonder if you could start by just saying a few words about yourself, introduce yourself, and tell us if you're um, comfortable doing so, how you ended up reporting on human rights abuses in Africa. Sure. Uh, thank you. So my name is Anjan Sundaram. I uh, grew up in India uh, and in Dubai, where my parents were working. I went to boarding school in India. And uh, my interest in Human rights reporting began when I was uh, a a university student. I I, I studied at Yale in the U.S. and I was studying mathematics. And uh, I guess perhaps the most telling incident was I I was at lunch one day in uh, the university cafeteria. And I just finished lunch and I opened the New York Times. And in the middle of the newspaper at the bottom of the page, uh, buried somewhere in the middle of the paper, was a small article about how uh, back then 4 million people had died in the war in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, I was you know, rushing to my next class, but it kind of struck me how strange it was that such an important event with you know, 4 million people uh, killed was described in a very small article at the bottom of the page in the middle of the newspaper of the New York Times. And I didn't understand why this story wasn't on the front page. 
And that little seed of a thought grew into uh, the decision eventually to, you know, gra- when I graduated from Yale, when I graduated with my degree in mathematics, I bought a one-way ticket to Kinshasa, Congo, and uh, uh, with no journalism experience, and began to report and learn journalism and learn reporting uh, just with this idea that whatever I was witnessing and whatever was happening in this country should be, should make the news, but it wasn't making the news. And so that's when, that's how everything began. Is it um, frustrating a bit that it remains to a violent place and is little discussed in American pages at least? Yes and no. I mean, uh, that that impulse has driven most of my work. Uh, the idea that I'd like to report uh, that I that I, the, the sense of meaning and fulfillment and purpose that I find in reporting on important, you know, what I think are important world events that somehow don't seem to get the attention uh, that they need. Sort of illuminating those events as much as I can as a reporter. Uh, I find great meaning in that. In terms of the U.S., it's strange. Uh, you know, compared to India, for example, I would say the U.S. is far more interested in in, in world news and international news. But overall, yes, I agree with you. I, I think it's a it's a real shame uh, that such powerful events are affecting people, millions of people around the world. And, you know, they just make the margins of our news. Uh, they're on the edges of our consciousness. And I guess I have this idea that, you know, we, we, should, we should be more connected. We, we do live in the 21st century with, you know, incredible media infrastructure, access to information. But even in our age of information, Twitter, you know, uh, social media, news on the minute, it's 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 shocking and stunning that huge swaths of the world, even when you know extreme events are occurring there, we don't hear about it. And uh, sometimes, you know, even a few dozen kilometers away from those events, or a few hundred kilometers away from those events, uh, the information does not pass. Uh, yeah, I think that I think that says something about the state of journalism, the state of our world. And uh, so while we are, while, while it's disappointing, it also, you know, I see, I see it as an opportunity to do work that to me feels meaningful. And I think you really succeed in closing what we see in the American press anyway, the empathy gap, and to bring forward the lives of people, whether it's in Congo or Rwanda or Central African Republic in your um, current book. And of course, the conflict and the war crimes that are happening in Central African Republic are the context, let's say, for your, I consider it a memoir, the memoir breakup. But before we get too far into the conversation, can you bring our listeners up to speed on what is happening in Central African Republic? Why would you leave your marital home to go to such a place? Sure. Uh, So in uh, Central African Republic, uh, it, it. as I write in the book, when I when I try to pitch editors to report on it, they ask me which Central African Republic, and uh, it doesn't even sound like a country. And the there's a reason for that. You know, the, one of the independence heroes wanted it to be 
part of an African federation, a United Nations of Africa, United States of Africa, much like you know the United States of America. Um, but in tw- the, the main event that occurred that made me want to report on it was in 2013, a group of rebels in the northwest of the Central African Republic uh, near the border with Chad decided to, uh, you know, start a revolution uh, and, and take over the country. And so they, they marched and drove from the north, far reaches of the northwest all the way to the capital, Bangui, in the south of the country and succeeded. They took over, they took power. And uh, during their, you know, uh, campaign and rebellion, uh, they ignited a war that the country had for long been Muslim. These rebels were, uh, the country had for long been Christian uh, for about a hundred years, hundred maybe 120 years since the French uh, came and colonized the region. Uh, the Christians had dominated and these, these Muslim rebels, mostly Muslim, uh, took over and uh, it ignited a civil war that had strong relig- religious uh, tones. And uh, at the time, the war was as large as the war in Syria. Uh, sorry, yes. At the time, the war was as as large as the war in Syria, which was dominating the front pages of newspapers uh, across the world. And uh, and yet, this war in the Central African Republic, because it seemed like such an obscure country, uh, didn't make the news at all. And so, again, you know, following my instinct, you know, the reasons that I went to Congo, uh, it seemed like an important story to tell, uh, the one that wasn't being covered. Uh, there was, you know, enormous violence. There was, uh, there was talk at that time of potential genocide, and still it wasn't making the news. And uh, a friend of mine, who was uh, a researcher for Human Rights Watch, was uh, he and I organized a trip to go and research different aspects of the war. Me as a journalist, I would, you know, focus on uh, current events, the news from the war, the the violence, the the uh, I wanted to report from the front war's front line. And his work as a human rights researcher was, was more to document uh, killings and massacres that had occurred that had not been uh, documented or reported in many cases, and to create a, uh, a legal record that could be used to prosecute the perpetrators of those human rights crimes uh, in, in international courts. And so he was working more in the past and me and more in the present. And uh, together we traveled across the, the country uh, trying to report on as much uh, of the war as we could. And we ended up driving through places where massacres had happened, were about to happen, were happening. Uh, and, and yet in many of those cases, just a few dozen kilometers away, uh, people didn't know. Uh, maybe they had an inkling of something happening there. They'd heard a rumor, but because uh, the country's radio network had been destroyed by the government, by the Muslim rebels on their way in, you know, to take power, um, the, there wasn't much news, uh, you know, spreading across the country at all. And so, uh, a lot of the, and a lot of the things we discovered, a lot of the, you know, the, the events that I write about that we discovered. Uh, uh, 
were known only to people in those local, very localized areas. Uh, and we, we moved by instinct, by rumor, we, you know, uh, trying to make sense of this war and trying to, in our very limited capacity, uh, trying to document uh, as much of it as we could and trying, in the end, trying to get somewhat close to the war's heart and uh, to understand where it was heading. I mean, I think the book succeeds in that way. You certainly um, show the intimacy of the violence, the intimacy of the relationships you have with Lewis and others um, that we'll talk about a little bit later. But before we go into like the important point you make about human rights reporting, providing context, providing human stories, and the work that someone like Lewis does on the human rights report for legal purposes, those are different kinds of narrative forms, at least in my mind. I wanted to ask a few things just about the ethics of, of the work. Um, this is something that comes up in American classrooms quite a bit. You mentioned you were self-taught. Um, I believe ethics can't be taught. You can maybe alert people to it. Um, the knack for storytelling probably can't be taught. You can practice it, but you have to practice. I think it is a, a skill that can be developed, but is also a nascent thing that exists within you. Is there something in your, you know, being Indian, um, being highly educated in the United States, being a person who obviously speaks many languages because of the places you visited, is there something in your person that makes this work idiosyncratic to you? Or is it something that um, you could see mentoring others to do as you um, age out, so to speak? And I'm, I'm sort of projecting here, I've certainly aged out of human rights work myself. Oh. Uh, I haven't, I haven't thought about, to be honest, very honest, I haven't thought about the legacy of the work in that way. Uh, That's okay. We can pivot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, I didn't I, want to put you on the spot, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Like in 2023, we're getting um, so many people interested in human rights because of the war in Ukraine because of Syria, which you mentioned, um, Rwanda in many ways, the genocide there in 1994, it feels like the world's genocide and the fact that everybody seems to know about the Holocaust and they know about Rwanda. So there probably is a story there. I just don't know what it, what it is. I was just curious about that. But perhaps- I can talk a little bit about who inspired me. Um, I remember reading an interview of this Polish journalist, Ryszard Kapuczynski, um, as about his you know experiences reporting in Africa, and uh, the sense I got from his interviews, we, we, there was a line in one of his interviews with Granta Magazine, in which he says, you know, he was in Africa in the fifties and sixties, and there were coup d'etats, revolution, world history unfolding before his eyes, and then he asked, where were the poets? Where were the writers? Where were the philosophers? And he said there was just me and a couple of journalists, you know, running around. And that still feels true to me today of many parts of the world. Uh, as news bureaus have shrunk, uh, they've shrunk their international operations. You have foreign correspondents, you know, for the Washington Post or New York Times, which are the best funded bureaus. They're handling, they're covering 20 countries each. It's impossible to, uh, it seems impossible to cover so many countries in depth. Uh, inevitably, they have to choose kind of focused countries and so huge chunks of our world, I think, are uh, left uncovered. And that, that interview from Rujard Kapuczynski, I sort of followed up on it and I asked a couple of reporters uh, 
when I was a student, I, I looked through the alumni network, uh, you know, the database at Yale, and I found a couple of journalists and I called them up and I was like, you know, is it is it still the case? And they said, certainly is uh, in Congo. There's news and there's no one there to cover it or from an international perspective. Uh, and, that, and that made me think, okay, if there's important things happening in all these places and there aren't that many reporters, then that's where I want to be. And so that that's the, the, the impulse that, kind of took me out there i think i think we need more and more of uh you know this kind of reporting there, there are spaces all around the world and uh i can speak about my current project you know uh, but but yeah, i i i find the it's part of the human condition almost we turn away from some of the what we might think of as darker things uh we we tend to turn away from them uh, and yet uh Considering reflecting on our own flaws, on the flaws in our world, uh, places that are troubled, places that you know our global order uh, neglects uh, and and even undermines places. I'm thinking of places like the Congo and you know yeah. Central, yeah, Central Africa. I think these places we need to reflect on them. We need to just not not only not just you know to resolve those conflicts. Uh, but also for ourselves to reflect on the global order that we live in, that we create, uh, that we're a part of. And uh, I, I think of it as very, uh, you know, even at, at an individual level to reflect on our own flaws is very important. And yet the human tendency is to turn away from them and not consider them. And I think that's what happens to places like Congo. Uh, they can seem too uh, difficult to look at. And, and I think it's very important that we do. Yeah, and impenetrable to the outsider, which of course is the exact opposite take that you have um, built your career on. And I love that you read Kaprasinski. I actually reread some of his work to prepare for today's interview. And of course, for anyone listening, oh, good. yeah, Granta is a great source for long form narrative on places other than our own. There's lots of very good Africa stuff. Wainaina obviously published his great. Um, um, how to write about Africa peace and granted, for example. Um, I appreciate what you say about your own flaws. I think, you know, I've read all of your works. Um, I teach bad news in a course that I teach at Colgate University. The self-awareness part is, of course, massively important. You bring this lens to the demise of your marriage. And I just wanted to ask one question about that before we move back to the human rights reporting and the human rights genre per se. Is breakup uh, like a meditation, a mediation even on domestic life and its ordinariness, like how banal changing diapers is, for example, you write about the first um, months of your daughter's life quite eloquently, or is it something about the impossibility of home when you are a war reporter? Uh -huh. I'm, <laughs> I, I certainly, you know, don't believe it's impossible and I, and I, you know, don't want to believe that. But certainly in my case, I wanted to write about how, I think for one, I think many journalists were trained to write about other people, about the world. And yet uh, this is left, uh, you know, ironically, this is left very little reporting on the personal or ourselves. We, we rarely, you know, turn the camera to our, our, upon our, uh, ourselves and uh, reflect on our own role in our reporting and 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 what it the, what it takes to do the kind of work that we do 
uh, in this book, I consider the, the personal costs of doing, you know, war reporting, but also how, so I begin the book with family and how family, my family provided an anchor from which uh, I found it possible to go out and report on, you know, the kinds of things that we've been discussing uh, in the world. I felt the domestic uh core, this domestic anchor that I had in my family uh, gave me strength, gave me courage uh, to, to step out. And I was doing the work also for my family. And yet the, 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 maybe the paradox is that the kind of work that I did uh, and that I do, you know, damaged and ultimately destroyed that marriage uh, and split the family. Uh, and so I, I think to your question about home, <laughs> I think uh, for myself, one of the purposes of home, I, I love the sense of home. I love feeling uh, protected, cared for, to have that sanctuary. But I could not be happy just being there. Uh, and and I, 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 I'm not sure. I, I think a lot of people might feel this way. But uh, what I wanted to write about was I having built that, safe place, that sanctuary for myself, home. Uh, the natural thing to do then was to leave home and go out and, and explore the world and report on the world, knowing that I could always come back to home if I were in trouble. And that was very important for me because uh, you know, reporting on the war in the Central African Republic uh, or, or anywhere, I, 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 I'm often afraid and the, knowing that I can at any point return to my home, it gave me a sense of spiritual calm that is very important to my work. And then I wrote about how at the end, unfortunately, there, there is maybe a mismatch uh, and, and the work, you know, uh, took away that sense of home from me uh, and I had to rebuild. But I, I think it might be a cyclical process where... I have to create these sanctuaries. I have to create these safe spaces for myself in order to be able to go out into more dangerous places. <clears throat> and the two go together. And uh, yeah, the, maybe they, 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 they don't live so comfortably next to each other, uh, beside each other. But I think the, that tension is the tension in my work. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the, the idea of sanctuary is so compelling because, of course, in many ways, those of us who do this kind of work, I'll throw myself in the ring right now, we need home to ground us to be able to do the work that is so intense, um, sometimes dangerous, as you clearly document in your book, but that um, you probably also perhaps want to have a sense of providing sanctuary because you have that story, for example, in the book where you meet a woman who survived a massacre and she sort of emerges from the um, side of the road, kind of bewildered, but she meets you and Lewis and she's like, just write down what happened to me. And that sense of documentation gave her a form of sanctuary. I'm sure that her, what happened to her could be told to the outside world. Yes, indeed. Uh, that was, that was some, one of the moments when I realized that the work I was doing was uh, crucial to a lot of people, uh, having reached this town that was that had been destroyed in a, in a battle that had been burnt down, and all the people had fled into the forest. Uh, when I went there, and they uh, we persuaded them, our team, we were there, me, Lewis, and a Central African reporter, Thierry, uh, 
persuaded them to, you know, leave their hiding places and come out and speak to us. I expected somehow naturally that the what they would ask for help in some way, uh, uh, food, some material help, food, medicine, water. But the first thing they, they asked was, you know, do people know what is happening to us or are we isolated? And then I realized that my coming here had, uh, had great meaning to them even more in that moment than uh, than food because if 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 people outside knew what was happening to them there was there was hope uh, was... but if nobody knew yeah if nobody knew then they were totally isolated um, that's one of the moments when you know you I'm doing my work in these isolated places isolated from you know from the global media uh, there's a sense that very few people want to listen to these stories at least when I when I'm uh, trying to pitch them to editors and trying to sell them. Um, and yet, and so it can be hard work sometimes and can feel isolating. But then moments like those remind me that it's crucial. And it, a lot of people depend on uh, the basic function of journalism, you know, yeah. to, to, to share information, to, to report on abuses of power so that those who have abused power are held accountable and can't hurt other people. Uh, it's really that simple, and uh, just the act of the fact of having a witness somewhere to crimes means that perpetrators know they're being watched uh, and know they can't get away with, uh, uh, you know, uh, extreme or excessive crimes. Uh, that that itself, just showing up, being there, being a mm -hmm. witness, uh, can mean a lot and can do so much. Well, it's a great point that you make just to begin to pivot to more on the human rights reporting. This idea of being a witness is quite different than being a voyeur or being a bystander. And there's like a strong sense of action um, in your story, you and Lewis and Terry and your your driver, um, can't remember his name right now, who may or may not. We had a few. It's fine. Um, yeah. You know, you had to manage in pretty difficult situations, but you also met like the Catholic nun who was protecting people in her small corner of the um, of the countryside and the ways in which of course the narrative form that journalism provides dovetails so nicely with the legalistic human rights reports that internet members in the international community rely upon you know groups like human rights watch amnesty international of course many others and I think that's the the compelling draw for me about breakup is that it's a behind the scenes glimpse into the work of you know investigative journalism in a war zone. Its risks, of course, its rewards, its personal costs through your marriage and other personal things, but also its professional accolades and the ways in which you and Lewis, of course, have success. In he's writing reports to the U.S. Embassy and back to Washington, and the government actually has to stop some of its actions because of on your, you know, on the ground, real time reporting. And I have kind of an esoteric question. We'll see what you think of it. Does a place like Central African Republic even exist without journalists like you, without human rights investigators like Lewis? <laughs> As I said, you know, it, it, it sounds like a region, not a country. Mm. Uh, it can feel it really legally does. like a, yeah, it, it can feel like legally like a piece of the high seas. Uh, neighboring countries like Chad and Sudan, they would send in, uh, you know, rebels from those countries would just cross the border and camp out in the Central African Republic, knowing very well that the, you know, the, the government and army of the Central African Republic didn't have the resources to kick them out. 
And so it became this kind of, uh, you know, haven for uh, opposition elements. It, it really felt like negative space, political space and legal space in some ways. Uh, and that, that was part of what made me feel that it was, that it was important to report you know, on that country. Uh, when I tried to look up uh, for, uh, you know, research the country, the, the only mainstream, one of the only mainstream uh, reports uh, that I could find was from a hundred years ago, written by André wow. Gide in, uh, in a book called Voyage au Congo. And so uh, the journey through the Congo and uh, so the Central African Republic wasn't even named explicitly, but he'd gone through the country reporting on the French colonial government's uh, uh, colonial crimes. And since then, there have been some academic texts, uh, you know, academic journals. But in terms of a, a, a report that could reach a mainstream audience in a country that I thought was important for many, many reasons, uh, I, I could find very few. Uh, I found a comic book. It, there was almost nothing. And uh, the reason I, I felt it was really important was across the world, I feel uh, we're seeing countries and movements to, uh, you know, uh, reverse Western colonialism. And be, uh, many countries, including my own India, uh, you know, uh, in Russia, you, Turkey, uh, Countries are trying to create a new world order and trying to, you know, reclaim some of their indigenous pride of, of who they were before uh, Europeans came and colonized those places. And in, in the Central African Republic, this took the form of Muslim rebels who remembered that before the French came in the late 19th century uh, and colonized that region, uh, the Central African Republic or you know, that region was... Uh, dominated by powerful Muslim kingdoms. And those were defeated by the French uh, who then took over and then you know, uh, created a, a Western dominated, Christian dominated uh, or political order that lasted for a hundred years. And most textbooks, most you know, people around the world had forgotten this history, but the Muslims uh, in, in, that, in the Central African Republic remembered this. And they remembered their, you know, old glory and their their days of power, and they saw this as their chance to reclaim power and return to their old old order and overthrow and reverse what the French had done for for a hundred years here. And uh, and I I see it as a as a movement that is not isolated that is happening around the world. Uh, many many countries are looking, you know, to the past and trying to recraft themselves, ask them who they are, ask themselves who they are, uh, and trying to create a new identity that is not, uh, that is post-colonial. And I think this is very important. Uh, and the Central African Republic, as remote as it may seem and people may believe it to be, I think it's one of those theaters where these, these, this important movement, which is global, uh, is quite explicit. When the Muslim rebels, uh, when the Muslim rebels took over the government, I describe in my book how the Christians in the Central African Republic uh, rose up against them and tried to take back power. And, and they did. They did push the Muslims out. The Muslims retreated to, uh, uh, to remote parts of the country, uh, which, uh, you know, they broke away from the Central African Republic and 
renamed those areas uh, by new names and declared new nations. And one of the one of the new nations that they declared was called Dar al Kuti, which means the door to the forest, which was the name of a powerful Muslim empire uh, that the French had defeated uh, 120 years before. And so I, I don't think those names are a coincidence. I think they're really trying to go back to their past and uh, reclaim uh, glory that they see that the West took away from them. I love so much your answer to that question um, because there's a thread here that I think is really important for listeners to understand. There's complexity, there's history, um, there's a lot of different processes at work here that um, at the end of the day require a sense of responsibility to the story. That's one thing I absolutely loved about breakup is it's about intimate relationships well beyond marriage. Of course, in the West, we valorize marriage as the primary relationship. And of course it is, but you're very close with Lewis, obviously, um, very close with Terry, the Central African Republic um, national who becomes a staff member for Human Rights Watch. And of course you learn about him and become in relationship to him through um, your ex-wife, Nat. And I think that is... Um, responsibility to story is that commitment to the, the human stories that you've talked about throughout the um, throughout our interview. So I wonder if you could say a few words, if you're comfortable about the intimacy of human rights reporting, what is it like to travel in a squad, in a cell, in, you know, in a small car with petrol sloshing in the back of the pickup truck and, um, you know, the intimacy on which the reporting relies? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, uh, the the meaning and the connection to the work is often through uh, is often through the people who are you know about whom you're reporting, uh, and because I'm choosing topics that don't get uh, that I've chosen topics that you know haven't gotten uh, mainstream media coverage, uh, there's a real sense of connection, community, purpose. I uh, I don't see what's happening to them as just happening to them. I see it as part of our human history, our, you know, our shared history, uh, history that, that, that and events that happen to all of us as a community. And and as a reporter, I feel that you know I I feel maybe a sense of protection even in, in doing my work, because if I'm doing this work about people who, you know, faced human rights abuses, then I can hope and assume that something similar would be done for if something were to happen to me or people I care about, uh, people in my family, uh, people close to me. Um, I feel the work is in itself building a sense of community. The, the, the act of driving and going to remote places, uh, remote in the sense of news, uh, places that are uncovered, uh, makes me, gives me a, a great, brings me great joy in a way. Uh, you know, it makes me feel incredibly connected. Uh, Trying to think of, the, there's a reason I think that this, I think this question touches upon the reason I, choose to write my stories in first person. Uh, I, I tell my stories in first person because I feel that a lot of what I'm hearing, a lot of what people are telling me uh, is a function of who I am 
my intentions. And often when I'm, yeah, when I'm uh, watching a, you know, reading a story, reading a piece of reportage, or watching a documentary, I find myself wondering who the journalist is. You know, where did they come from? Who are their parents? Did they lose someone? Why are they so obsessed with this story or this character? Why do they care so much? And often in traditional journalism, uh, you don't get answers to that. You don't find, you don't learn much about the reporters. And uh, and yet I think, and so I, I find that I, I like to make that transparent and I like to explore that as much as I can in my own writing. Uh, because I think it's absolutely crucial. I think people respond to me in a certain way because of who I am. And they respond to somebody else in a different way. They, they speak differently. They will say different things. Uh, and that subjectivity of that experience is very important for me. Uh, to, and to make that clear to a reader. Uh, it also means that I, I, in laying out my motivations, I, I will you know, tell a reader, I will show a reader you know, from where I'm coming. I will start from, often from the point at which I knew very little about the Central African Republic in this case, uh, and start there rather than start from a point of authority saying, you know, I've traveled through this country. I, I've learned a lot. I know a lot about it. Let me tell you what, what's happening there. I'd rather start from the place where I speak about my ignorance, uh, what motivated me to go there, what got me curious about the place, and then take the reader with me as I learn, as I research, and I begin to travel with all my fears and, you know, uh, uncertainties, doubts, self-doubt, uh, as I'm trying to build a team, uh, you know, speaking to Lewis, and we're making plans together for where to go, planning a route. Uh, I like to take the reader with me on that journey, because I feel that that's, uh, that then makes it more human, more, uh, I create a connection, not, not only between uh, me and the story, but also between the place, the Central African Republic and the reader through me. And I also intimate to the reader that what I did, they could also do. And, and they can sit on my shoulder and go on this journey with me. And that going on that journey might hopefully inspire them to consider doing such work themselves. Uh, whether it be, you know, in their communities, in their cities, in their countries, or somewhere far away, it doesn't really matter. The process and the sense of connection uh, is the same. I mean, I appreciate your answer so much because I think when I think of your collective body of work through books, I have not talking about your um, journalism here, the sense of trustworthiness you have um, in your presentation and the tone and the narrative forms that you choose is so powerful because the reader does definitely get this sense of like, we're going along with a guide who is sincere and empathetic and competent and maybe blindly courageous on occasion, but generally is committed to the human story. And that I think is um, really the triumph for me. The word triumph is a bit corny, but I think I mean it. Um, a breakup because it shows us exactly what is possible. Um, and I just want to pivot quickly to sort of some of the nitty gritty of your reporting with that um, segue. How do you assess uh, what makes a reliable source given, you know, the competing, um, the complex, the contradictory narratives of, you know, victims? You met victims, but you also met child soldiers. You met um, civil society actors to use academic language, you know, nuns and drivers and um, 
eyewitnesses, let's say, how do, how do you assess what makes a reliable source as you're bringing us along with you on as your um, as your partner? I think there, there's so there are two important aspects to that question. I think the first, the reliability of a source is important for my physical safety, the safety of my team uh, to be able to plan where to go, uh, um, you know, to make sure that we're not get, going to a day, putting ourselves in too much danger. And that's not all, you know, you can't always uh, uh, guarantee that in this kind of work as you, you know yourself. Um, and so that, in that sense, reliability is important to like, you know, cross check to the source, uh, try, try to, you know, d try to uh, gauge if what they're saying is true. But in, in another sense, I think the unreliability of sources is, uh, I, I find that fascinating and important. I, I think uh, what's more important to me than the truth of what people are saying is uh, whether they believe what they're saying and whether they're willing to act on that belief. And so something may not be true, but if they believe it enough to act on it, you know, uh, for example, such a belief, you know, might be during the Rwandan genocide, uh, one part of the population believed that the other, you know, was a threat and needed to be exterminated. Whether that was true or not, you know, well, many of, the Tutsis in Rwanda were not a threat, but uh, somehow, you know, uh, enough people believed that story uh, and were willing to act on it. Uh, and, and that's what made their beliefs so important. And that for me is, it, it touches the core of uh, what interests me about doing this kind of work. You know, I, I studied mathematics and, uh, in studying mathematics, you know, you have axioms, you create worlds. I studied algebra in which you create worlds and those worlds are built on, ax built on axioms, uh, just rules that you start off with. And, uh, and then you build, you, you build rational conclusions based on those axioms. And uh, a lot of the work that I, sp I did as a student of mathematics was you know, the rational part, the, you know, what's true. And then when, at one point I realized, no, actually what is more interesting is the axioms. Well, why do you choose to build this kind of world? What, what drives your decision to define this world in this way? And for me, those are beliefs. What do you choose to believe? Uh, why do you believe those things? I, I think those questions can't be easily answered. You can't rationalize uh, someone's belief they believe it uh they've chosen to believe that and and in fact many, many many cases trying to rationally argue that they shouldn't believe it can be counterproductive and i find that uh part of our human you know our human uh uh a human choice uh infinitely fascinating because it drives so much of what happens in the world in the central african republic uh you know the the, the the Muslims and the Christians each had beliefs about each other, and and these beliefs drove the war. Uh, and and I was fascinated by the unreliable sources who would tell me one of my drivers, his name was Suleiman, you know, when the the Muslim government in the Central African Republic at that point was burning down towns, he said to me, "Oh no, it's the 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 it's the dry season and the thatched roofs spontaneously catch fire." To a certain degree, I, I think he believed that because he could not admit to himself that his government, his people were burning down towns and, you know, killing uh, 
many Central Africans, uh, many of his compatriots uh, on mass. And so that was a belief that he chose. And I, I find those moments uh, when people tell me things that are maybe obviously untrue, um, I find those fascinating and very important to get into because they tell us something very important about the world that they live in uh, and what they're willing to do to protect their world and protect their families and protect the things that they care about. And uh, that this has implications for everybody. Yeah, I love your response because, of course, um, capital T truth is the thing that doesn't actually exist when you're dealing with human beings. And we can hear birds chirping in the background, human beings in their context, (laughs) you know, whether they're living next to a river, they keep animals, they have relationship with the forest and so on and so on. I think that's pretty interesting. And it it brings up, I think, a broader point, too, about um, this sort of axiom, to use your language of a neutral witness, that you can be a neutral witness to atrocities. I know in my days as a human rights investigator in Rwanda, people used to say, why are you so upset? Just do the work. Like, I can't believe you're not upset. We had such a a different response to the neutrality principle. And I think your work is um, so interesting and should be widely read because it tells us the contradictions. It tells us when you're scared. It tells us when you're uncertain. It shows us the ways in which you navigate um, difficult situations, whether you're on the roadside being held at um, gunpoint by a group of child soldiers or drunk soldiers, as we saw in the text, or of course, um, the broader implications of documenting these stories for policymakers, for politicians, for international lawyers, and so on and so on. So thank you so much for um, sharing that. And we're soon to run out of time. So I just want to ask um, one more question and then I'll ask you something about what you're working on now. Um, Do you see human rights reporting as a political act based on all that you've just said in response to my last question? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, Absolutely. I I think what's, what I, I and I learned a lot of this on that journey in the Central African Republic. In fact, watching Lewis work, uh, his work was, uh, you know, as a human rights watch researcher, was uh, incredibly diligent, incredibly detailed. Uh, journalists, we need maybe resources to, to, you know, to report something. For him, he needed he needed a dozen sources. He needed a dozen people to corroborate, uh, you know, that uh, that. Um, massacre had happened or somebody had come and tried to kill them the level the the burden of proof for a court of law is so much higher than in journalism and and uh and yet uh and that 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 work was is a political act i admired you know the work that he was doing in watching him and how he went about the work i learned a lot about how we hold accountable these crimes and that's very important uh but I, I believe the act of storytelling is, uh, you know, when, when done best is, is, is political. Uh, the, sto- the storytelling, you can tell stories for so many reasons to entertain somebody, to inform somebody, but I, I feel the best stories ne- need to feel necessary uh, to tell. And, uh, and, and though I, you know, I, I craft my books as stories with, you know, with characters, uh, and you know, uh, often from my perspective, uh, I, I make myself a character in the story because I find uh, I find many of these places, including the Central African Republic, you know, they're they're 
hard to report on, hard to get people's attention. Uh, uh, and when I wrote my first book about Congo, I, I I thought to myself, well, maybe it's hard to get people naturally interested in the people of Congo, in their lives and what's happening, because it seems can seem so far away uh, to many people, you know, many readers in India or in the States or in Canada. Uh, but maybe if I, you know, introduce myself, maybe they might be interested in me. And maybe in following me, they can, I can take them through a place like the Central African Republic and they can learn something about uh, that country. They can feel closer to that country. Uh, and so that choice to tell the story in first person uh, through myself uh, is a political choice. And uh, the, the choice to report on this place, the Central African Republic, which is not getting attention, but I feel should get attention, uh, is also a political choice. Um, uh, and, and, and yeah, everything about this story, I feel, uh, to me, you know, the necessity of telling this story, the hope that through connection between this place and the wider world, wherever readers are, will spur some action, spur some empathy, spur uh, more witnesses, uh, less violence. Uh, all of that are, is political. And, uh, and, and I believe and that the story, the form of the story is, is, is a tool, uh, is, is, is a way to, you know, is the, I think it's a universal way to communicate our experiences and break up in a certain sense now, uh, you know, I've, I've, in writing it, I've realized that I not only documented the world, but I've also been documenting my own life at the same time, uh, different phases of my life. In Congo, I was a young journalist trying to, young man trying to become a journalist. In Rwanda, I was uh, teaching journalism and learning journalism, but also trying to practice it and uh, learning what it meant to practice it. And, and in, in Breakup, I kind of uh, uh, explore and began to understand the personal costs of this choice uh, of, of the, you know, doing this kind of reporting. Uh, so in, at each step, it's it's felt political, not only for the world in terms of world history and world politics. Uh, it's also felt political in terms of literary choices, in terms of a readership, what stories are necessary to tell to whom, uh, about what, but also political for myself. Uh, you know, what are the implications at just the level of my family? for doing this kind of reporting and you know choosing to do it and making this choice to continue this kind of work. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. It um, is a great way, I think, to pivot to the closing. You've been so generous with your time. I do wonder if your daughter will read the book when she gets older, if you'll try to put it in her hands and whether she will or not will be interesting. We can talk about that when you write your next book. Um, what are you working on now? Oh, um, so after many years of uh, reporting from Central Africa, often from you know front lines of wars or human rights conflicts or repression over there, um, I've pivoted to I think one of the, the great uh, battle of our time war might be you know our battle with the environment, and mm -hmm. these might be the front lines. Again, I find the front lines of this battle between humans and nature 
this battle to preserve nature are not reported on as as widely and deeply as as they should. And uh, there are many environmental defenders around the world, often working in obscure obscurity, uh, very difficult conditions, risking their lives. Uh, and so my current project is to travel and meet these environmental defenders and uh, write about them and bring their stories to the world because I feel they're defending and protecting nature on behalf of us all and uh, and often taking great risk. And again, it's... Uh, incredibly inspiring people who are risking everything, their lives, their family, their wealth, their house, uh, to protect reputation. a river or forest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, reputation. You have to protect a river or forest, something that might seem amorphous to us. And I think it they expand, they teach me in being with them, and I'm reporting in Central America, uh, Latin America mostly, uh, in being with them, uh, one of the things I take away is that you know, our, our community can no longer be defined as just human. Uh, we need to think of our community as uh, including the natural world. And that's how many of these defenders see it and why they're willing to give their lives for a tree. Uh, and I think that kind of thinking has now become essential. Uh, we, need, we need to think like that if, if we're going to, if our civilization is going to survive uh, climate change and you know, environmental changes in uh in anything close to our current form of civilization. And so, uh, yeah, we have a lot to learn about how to live in harmony with, with nature. And I think that that will come from a sense of community, broader sense of community that includes human community and also natural community. Um, and that's something we need to learn urgently. And so that, that's what's driving my reporting at this time. Yeah, I look forward to your um, publications. I have a new course on human rights defenders more broadly, not just environmental ones. And it has actually been difficult to find good reporting on environmental defenders in English. Anyways, I look forward to that. Uh, I've, oh, been speaking to, yeah, I've been speaking to Anjan Sutram about his new book, Break Up, A Marriage in Wartime. It will be published in April 2023 by Catapult Press. Please get a copy. Anjan, very last question. Do you have a book, a podcast, a documentary, something, something, that you would recommend for listeners wanting to learn more about Central African Republic or any aspect of what we've discussed today? Wow, the Central African Republic, there's just so little media about the country. Uh, is there something I would recommend about this situation? Oh, there's a, there's a comic book. It's called uh, A House with No Windows. And it's illustrated by a friend of mine. His name is Didier Kasai. He's a Central African... Uh, illustrator and journalist and it's an incredible incredibly moving uh piece of reportage about uh some aspects of the war there so yes i would recommend that lovely thanks for your time